basically what I did was think of stuff I would hear myself saying over time in meetings with students or faculty meetings that didn't feel comfortable to me. And I, it came out of my mouth and I thought, oh, that's, it just felt wrong, icky. And I would, and, and I realized that, uh, you know, just, I would have a student sitting in my office, for example. And one of my first tweets would just be like, uh, please sit here patiently while I finish this email and you wait awkwardly while I get back to you or something like that. And it, it was, it was not even funny. It was just sort of the pretentious things faculty do when they have, oh yeah, come in, we're ready for the meeting. Right. And you just have them sit there while you're writing an email in front of them that you could finish after the meeting. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Bosler and I'm here with my co-host James Heathers and today we're joined by a special guest, Nathan Hall, who is an associate professor at the Department of Education and Counseling Psychology at McGill University. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Now, Nathan, your name only recently came onto my radar um, and but what I didn't realize is that I've actually been aware of your work for much longer via your tweets on the uh, Shit Academics Say Twitter account, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware of. Um, uh, if they're not, if they're not, they goddamn well should be, because it's. Uh, I'll get. A, I'm gonna start by reading one. That's the the uh, the, the pin tweet right now. Um, this uh, this this brings me a great deal of pleasure. Retweets are not endorsements. They are performative engagement markers that intentionally confound direct alignment with ironic promotion, ambivalent reflection, or personal brand management so as to reveal, reveal all or nothing of one's authentic perception depending on the observer. Now, you have to be a certain kind of person to find that funny, and we are. <laughs> I think it helps to have a PhD in psychology because you tend to overthink everything. So when you when you stumble onto social media and you see all of these academics with these bios, uh, either they are uh, touting their most recent book effort or they're indicating retweets are not endorsements and trying to <sighs> sound as if this is some original contribution or that they're implying something that they're not. That everything is a statement. Everything is performative and. It's. Uh, I like to make fun of that a little bit. Academics are a pretentious bunch. I like to. I like to poke <laughs> at it a little bit. Now, oh, I can't. I can't relate to that at all. Can you relate to that, Daniel? Yeah, not not at all. Not at all. Now, now this um this account's obviously struck a chord with with academics. Uh, it's almost hitting uh, three hundred thousand followers. Can you walk us through how you actually got started with the account? How I got started? Uh, basically, I was uh, pre-tenure and burnt out and uh, depressed, lonely, and I basically wanted to figure out if there's anybody else like me, and I wanted to see if there was um, a community out there where people were talking about the kind of things I had started to think about now that tenure was sort of uh, in the crosshairs. I had won a few grants, I'd graduated a few students, and uh, basically that's what I was told I needed to get tenure. So that really wasn't a, an anxiety-provoking, uh, future-oriented concern anymore. My concern started to be more about meaning and value and community and some of the things that I had left behind in order to uh, accelerate toward tenure more quickly. So I was wondering, you know, are people talking about these issues, the weird stuff we do, applying for grants you don't need to show that you can win grants, uh, supervising students for academic jobs that aren't there, writing papers no one will read. Does anybody else feel at all weird about this stuff? It turns out that on social media, Twitter specifically, uh, people were. And my uh, sort of coping method of choice, um, uh, you know, aside from the occasional Crown Royal and Coke in the evening, but uh, is humor. <laughs> I try to make jokes out of things. I try to make light out of it because if you're not laughing, you're you're 
crying, right? So that's, uh, that, that's my coping strategy. I'm the guy walking around the hallways making jokes in people's doorways, preventing them from doing their work. So I've sort of translated that online, and I thought, I'm going to follow some of these academic humor accounts, and there was basically only PhD comics, uh, and that's meant for grad students. There's really nothing for faculty, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. And it's easy to be good and considered excellent when you have absolutely no competition. So it took off. I had a thousand followers within a few weeks. I had 10,000 followers within a few months. And by the time I had 100,000 followers, I decided to use it to do actual research on faculty burnout because I realized I could put up a link to an, an article and get uh, 20,000, 30,000 clicks on it. So I thought if I had a study, I might be able to get 20,000, 30,000 uh, participants. It wasn't quite that big. I got about eight or 9,000, but uh, it, just it just actually, 9, yeah, just 9,000, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Major. A casual 9,000, we'll call but it. But it was, it was nice. I started off not thinking about that. Uh, I basically wanted to go on and talk about, uh, you know, does anybody else feel like a failure all the time? I have 16 failed grant applications since 2010. I have about five or six bigger grants, but I also have at least twice or three times as many failures. This is a kind of thing. Then you see other people posting uh, failure CVs talking candidly and honestly about imposter syndrome, which I, that's a term I learned about on social media, and now I'm doing research on it. So I went on there, I stumbled into it, trying to see is there anybody else like me. Uh, it was kind of a coping strategy as well to figure out if there's a community that I could belong to. And I realized there was, but it was very scattered. There was no focal point for people mm. to crowd around like a water cooler campfire type thing uh, where someone's sort of making a point of uh, raising these issues, sharing related uh, content on it and trying to make light of it or, uh, you know, put some humor on it to sort of attract people and, and start discussions. So I started a Twitter account, then at uh, 10,000 followers, I think I started a uh, Facebook account, which is now over half a million followers. So uh, there's, Good it Lord, resonates, really? right? Yeah, it, it wow. Facebook, right, Facebook yeah. is where I get most of the action. Now this is where you get a news article posted, 30,000 people click a link and it's, it's bonkers. Uh, but basically, I went on to see if other people care about these issues. Uh, if anybody wants to talk about these issues, the humor part for me is just uh, me making the same dad jokes I would make at a hallway. <laughs> and it's the same jokes people make in class all the time. They're, they're not incredible, right? The best jokes are me sort of mocking myself and the things that I'm saying, you know, putting the word letter, the, the text prof in my Twitter handle, prof underscore NCH. That, that's douchey. It is pretentious. And it's what I initially started off as, and I sort of own it. Uh, I went online initially to promote my own stuff, to, uh, to make a name for myself, and nobody, nobody cared. Uh, so I, I made a humor account, and I went with my sort of alter ego where I just make fun of everything. And uh, that, that took off, so I went with that instead. But I still kept my prof underscore NCH Twitter handle just to remind myself how douchey you can be if you just let yourself, you know, go and sort of buy, drink the academic Kool-Aid, if you will. Now, Nathan. Nice. Well, it's it's interesting. It's interesting that you you, you said when when this started out because it's a th it's what four years old or something. The account four or five years it's old. It's about five years old. Oh, yeah. it's f yeah. It's just turned five because it's a it's a funny thing within if you think of sort of genres of humor. Um, it it feels like it's. If it if it fits into one, it's come an awful long way in the last few years because I, I was sitting down before and thinking just off the top of my head, how many how how many things are there about scientific or academic humor in general? And there's actually lots 
and I'm assuming that most of them are recent. And he said PhD comics was the the first, the the kind of the the the, the nascent thing. That's what I what I stumbled across a, first. Yes, right. But think of um, I mean you've got XKCD and everyone knows Red Pen Black Pen yes. and Academic Obscura. Uh, there's an account I really like called Arsteens yep. that's about... I mean, it's specifically jokes about university administration. Now, that's fucking niche, man. <laughs> <laughs> that does not have a lot of... That does not have a lot of cut through outside of even certain certain sorts of academics. But, you know, and there's a picture of that horrible woman from the Harry Potters on it who was the kind of the, 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 the middle manager. But it has... It's 20,000... 20, people think that that account is funny that's true right so this is this is this is an extra big thing and then there's individual people who've sort of they've got their own kind of vibe when it comes to this but it's not this is not a topic i've ever seen anyone discuss honestly it's like i've never read an article about it i've never heard a podcast about it i've never heard of anyone trying to define it as a genre but it's very definitely a thing and there's hundreds of thousands of people Reading jokes, reading reading jokes like this all day. Good news with the provost returning to your department and keeping her administrative salary. Your department will finally be at the regional average for average uh, regional average for faculty salaries. Now, th- <laughs> that's, that, that's that is that's that fairly niche. Abs- yes, I would agree. Yeah, that's that's niche as fuck, man. That really is it. So there's a very specific thing. There's a very specific thing going on. It feels like there's an awful lot of uh, steam that needs to be blown off within a certain kind of area. And I'm not I'm not at all surprised. I didn't know that story you were about to tell. We don't can these things, but I'm not at all surprised that that was how you ended up in in this in this situation where this is a, a, like a a combination coping mechanism that eventually grew into something else. Yeah, I, I didn't get into sort of academic humor to contribute to sort of a, you know, a, a niche comedy stream, I suppose. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I was aware of, <laughs> indirectly of some of these things before. Uh, XKCD has been around for at least 10, 15 years. Uh, PhD Comics at yeah, least 12, just... uh, you know, years or more. And they were around more uh, in print. Like you would see them photocopied and taped to faculty doors or put on the built. Uh, yeah. uh, bulletin board in, in people's labs, right? Some walls are completely covered with these things. But uh, XKCD, for example, doesn't have their own social media. There's other people who share these things. There's also Dilbert that has workplace sort of things that relate. There's other uh, random cartoons from the New Yorker, right? Uh, you know, with people having more comments than questions or whatever. It's that, that sort of thing. Um, many speeches disguised as queries or whatever. So you have these existing... Um, sources of comedy related to uh, not just academic work, but sort of more high-profile professional work and uh, poking fun at them a little bit, but they, they weren't sort of very present on social media. And if they were, I noticed them in sort of scattered uh, ways. For example, PhD Comics, that account was not taking off. Uh, but there were other accounts. There specifically was one account that I gravitated towards heavily. Uh, uh, and the guy... Uh, the guy's name is Eric Jarosinski. He has a uh, account called uh, Nine Quarterly, N-E-I-N. So I, I've worked a lot in Germany. I studied German since I was a child. I have postdoctoral fellowship to work at University of Munich. So I'm familiar with German comedy and German academia, which for me was, you know, ripe for the picking. And he had done it. He was doing it, and his account was taking off. 
he would get you know five thousand followers a month and i was and i got curious not just about his style of humor which was basically deadpan and it was about philosophical issues and philosophy and making fun of philosophy uh, but I was I was curious, <laughs> and he and he was a professor. I've just I've just found yeah, and it. He, he's an he's oh an assistant professor, God. right? At the time, he actually uh, ended up not getting tenure, and I'm not sure what he's doing now. But um, he he was an assistant professor, having this viral account, and I started tracking the way he was interacting. Uh, you know, as a social psychologist, you know, who was responding, how he was uh, engaging, how often he was tweeting, uh, how much people were responding, how quickly, what's the time lag, when does it fall off? I started getting into social media analytics just to track, you know, what's the influence of this account? How far is it reaching? How fast is it growing? And then I would see other academic accounts like Oxford Academics sort of going their own traditional academic route. And at that time, they had about 35,000 followers and nine quarterly had like 85,000 followers. And I, I, it just sort of sparked in my brain. I was playing Angry Birds at the time compulsively as a coping mechanism. I was at the top 0.1% of the rankings internationally <laughs> for that. My wife, again, no she made me delete it from my phone because it got a bit obsessive. I do have children to take care of, she said. So uh, I, had to, I had to remove it. I also had a grant application to finish. So that was, I had priorities that, that were competing. But anyways, I basically deleted, deleted Angry Birds and I started a Twitter account. Uh, and with the same sort of game type mentality to see how, if I could, figure out and distill these principles that were connecting with people so quickly, so rapidly, and to try and figure out if I could do that. So I started one sort of anonymous account, just uh, complaining about students or read the syllabus, student shaming. And then eventually that that got old. And now I, I very much detest those kind of things, McSweeney's and that sort of humor where faculty go off on students or there's these, uh, you know, anonymous academic prof accounts where they just shame students. And that's, that's a little old and easy, you know. Uh, I figure if you can't uh, poke fun at yourself, you really, uh, you know, should <laughs> shouldn't be poking fun at people who you have uh, influence and power over. So it's it's if you can't make fun of yourself, you should probably step aside and wait until you can, uh, because it's a bit it's harder to make fun of your profession, to make fun of academic service committee research. Work. It's, right. it's it's easy to pick on students for their work and snapshot or uh, screenshot their you know their shitty essays or whatever, and it's it's funny to a point, but then I realize. I was getting into that genre. I didn't like it, uh, and I That's decided true. I would yeah. try a different strategy. And that actually had a few thousand followers. And I went into another uh, uh, account called uh, Research Wahlberg, where I basically started doing doing uh, memes. That you? That's me, yes. Whoa. And so I started. Uh, I, I I asked a few accounts. I started inquiring, like, uh, how how are you taking off so fast? And there was an account called uh, Research Gosling that just shared Mark Gosling memes with research stuff written on it. And uh, it turns out that's a thing. Uh, yeah. And they said, yeah, hey, hey, hey girl, I hey want girl. you to exactly. show me your P values. Me it's, yeah. Right. <laughs> Will you be my significant other sort of thing, right? So I, I, I figured, well, how could I do that and not offend <laughs> my like... wife by having like true fangirl things? Who could I put on a meme that people wouldn't take seriously as an academic or intellectual? But it's still somewhat like a heartthrob, but you would get the joke if I put, like, so it was between uh, Sylvester Stallone um, <laughs> and, like, Mark Wahlberg. And I picked Mark Wahlberg for some reason. And so for basically a whole term when I was teaching stats, I would, every morning on the train into That's work, amazing. come up with a few Mark Wahlberg memes. Uh, my class hated it. They really didn't like it. I stopped using it. But Twitter loved it, and that took off. But then I realized, uh, being on the, the train every morning, looking at half-naked Mark Wahlberg photos, I was getting uh, weird ah. looks. 
you know, it's one thing to write the text message with someone peeking over your shoulder. It's another thing oh. to be scrolling uh, Instagram feeds for, uh, oh. you know, pictures that, that, oh, that don't for, show for his old, third nipple. For right? old headshots of Marky oh. Mark from the 90s where he's not wearing a shirt exactly. and he's all oiled down and you're sitting around going, oh, I hope no students are looking over my shoulder. They'll be getting me back for that thing I said about their essay. <laughs> But I swear, some oh of those God. jokes are probably my best jokes that I'm most proud of that almost nobody gets. Like, hey, girl, you don't oh, need that uh, Bonferroni. There's no comparison. That, yeah. is, that is a clean, <laughs> a clean <laughs> joke. That's a clean joke. Right? Uh, that is neat. There is, there there is absolutely nothing spare on those no, words. nothing. Oh, you should not, uh, oh, you should not have told me about Nine Quarterly. This, oh my god yes. this is this guy is this i i i dig this grammar syntax and cynicism walk into a bar bartender what wouldn't it be <laughs> ah. he is a master at crafting jokes and i actually interacted with him we skyped a few times and i tried to um you know work with him on a project we actually had a falling out um i'm not sure why i think he believes i'm biting his style and uh blocked me and as very sort of initially he was very supportive and then he was very uh angry <laughs> so i'm not sure it, uh, things get weird between academics sometimes but uh i i really think his account is hilarious and i thought i would try to do something like that that was just text what could i do that was just text no awkward mark Wahlberg images no weird moments on the train something where i could just and something where i could even crowdsource it so i don't have to think of all this stuff myself and something where i don't even just mm. have to write jokes i can just put weird things academics say in a context where people would try to look for the humor in it. What's weird about it? So I, I remembered this meme account, you know, shit my dad says. Turned into a TV show. Oh, that was my favorite. Yeah, William Shatner was on it. That right? was like the, 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 cranky, the cranky old man. But way before I had Twitter and yep. Dan pissed in my ear for about 18 months uh, before I had Twitter. That was the, the only well. Twitter account I looked at for years and years yep. and years. It was a guy, he, if you don't know it, a guy had a super cranky old dad and he gave him kind of old dad advice, but the guy was fucking brutal. Hilarious. It was, it was really, hilarious. really funny. And that spawned a whole series of related memes. There's shit servers say. Probably uh, the biggest account is like shit swimmers say. Um, so uh, this was already old and dead. This, this show had already been canceled by the time I came up with the meme, but Fortunately for academia, all the memes are at least three to five years behind. So I was like in the moment, you know, in, in the academic stream. Finger, so, finger on the pulse. So I yeah, started Shit Academics Say and I was able to just sort of think of the, usually basically what I did was think of stuff I would hear myself saying over time in meetings with students or faculty meetings that didn't feel comfortable to me. And I, it came out of my mouth and I thought, oh, that's, it just felt wrong, icky. And I would, and, and I realized that, uh, you know, just I would have a student sitting in my office, for example, and one of my first tweets would just be like, uh, please sit here patiently while I finish this email and you wait awkwardly while I get back to you or something like that. And it, it was it was not even funny. It was just sort of the pretentious things faculty do when they have, oh, yeah, come in. We're That's ready for the meeting. Right. And you just have them sit there while you're writing an email in front of them that you could finish after the meeting. But you are so much more important than them. Your time is so much more valuable than them. And it's so much of a power move that you just make them sit there, watch you type an email to your editor saying, I can't get your chapter in on time or something like, and then you say, okay, now where were we, right? I would find myself saying these really pretentious things that didn't feel right, because I grew up blue collar. I never had parents who, uh, you know, went to university. My mom never, never even finished high school. So a lot of the stuff I was saying didn't feel uh, right. So I would just say it. And in this account called Shit Academics Say, I would say something like that. 
uh, or just even the words, it depends, right? A non-answer to every question, right? And that, that, was, that was hilarious. And I, the shortest tweet I ever wrote, I think, was R, right? Just the letter, capital letter R, because everyone's fucking talking about R, 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 R. You need to learn R. <laughs> and it freaks you out, because you, first you don't even know what this is. And then the thing is, though, if you tweet this, and it happens to be talk like a pirate day, it goes viral, right? Because academics are not very, <laughs> you know, creative with the I jokes. I knew there'd be a back end to that joke. Oh, my God. Anyways, <laughs> the, it, it turns out that you could just say stuff that academics say, and if you put it in this meme format, it would just take off. So there's stuff I could just say. There's stuff I could say that other people say. I could start writing jokes, which I actually didn't do initially that much. Uh, read the syllabus, for example, was something everyone was saying. Uh, but then over time, I started to get more creative, try to use more irony, sarcasm. And I would start to uh, actually every morning before 9 a.m., sort of on my commute into work or uh, driving the kids to school and back, um, I would try and think of at least two jokes and try and write stuff. So I'd be mining like uh, websites that listed all kinds of proverbs and could I switch something and make it something else or could I modify existing content for an academic art? I actually made it in a writing endeavor for about two years every morning before 9 a.m. to come up with two tweets, two new jokes, two uh, sort of things, right? To, to air as human, but to air repeatedly as research, right? I just take an existing uh, existing proverb and, and twist it, right? If you can't say anything nice, say it as a two-part question, or just say it as a uh, more than a, more of a comment than a question. <laughs> more of a right? comment than a question. And oh, we had an yeah. episode called that, fuck. Now, you, Nathan, you recently mentioned on Twitter that uh, you've actually been criticized for, for not taking academic things seriously enough and that, <laughs> uh, that your tendency to, to see the amusing side of things uh, or the amusing side of academia was, was a bit self-protective. Now, this kind of thing is occasionally in the back of my mind, um, even when I'm doing like super innocuous stuff like adding like a gif to a tweet about serious research and I'm, yes. in my mind, I'm like, oh, should I tweet this? And I'm like... What am I even thinking? Like, why am I even thinking like this? Like, what is your experience with these kinds of, of critiques? I still feel guilty adding animated GIFs to stuff. It took me years to do that because I just thought, thought that's not professional. And then you talk to enough people who, who tell you that being on social media is not professional, then you just, the, you know, the floodgates open. So, uh, you know, being on social media, I think you have to interact in, in the way that people are interacting. It's a different language, it's a different community, it's a different culture. If you're not there to live it and be it and interact with people in the way that people are interacting, you shouldn't be there, right? If you wanna be pretentious and stay high up and just promote your book and not retweet, share, and it's just, your timeline is just you talking about you and your class, sharing your syllabus or your most recent preprint, that's, that's, that's boring as hell. And, and that, so for me about, I don't know, not taking things seriously, uh, as seriously as uh, perhaps others do, not being a true believer perhaps in my discipline. Like I'm not in it uh, to push a discipline forward, something abstract. I I'm, I'm here to do meaningful research. I'm trying to look at how people cope with stress and how people deal with failure and trying to produce something that's actually uh, useful and um, which makes all the other academic stuff like writing things that people don't read sort of uh, ironically humorous. And the fact that people really care about these book chapters that they don't get paid for, all of this extra labor that is free, peer reviewing for free, and they're so serious about it. And they don't realize this is a massive manipulation scheme by publishers to make billions off of free labor based on convincing you that you need it for your self-esteem or self-worth. It's a, it's a really all a huge joke at the end of it where people are profiting billions 
off of incredibly intelligent people who should know better. And at a meta-meta level, it's it's kind of funny. These people who should know better and tell everyone, who teach on a daily basis about meta topics, at at a meta-meta level, they are being taken advantage of on a massive scale. It's been going on for years. And it's only because of social media and this open science concept where people start saying this stuff out loud. Like, uh, should we get paid for peer reviews? It's, oh, it's heresy, right? And then others are like, you know, that in the real world, people work and get, um, what it's called, a, a paycheck, right? People get paid for their work. If, if someone is doing something for you, working on your lawn or working on your house or doing help, you offer to pay. It's the freaking decent human thing to do. Even if you know you can't afford it, you offer, right? If you're at, at dinner with someone, you offer to pay even if you don't want to. It's, it's a decent human thing to do. And basic human decency is not afforded by a lot of these academic enterprises we're in. Asking students to perform free labor, uh, stay after hours, not have personal lives, not have personal relationships, be able to move at a moment's notice to another country for a postdoc, and then ridiculing them if they don't because they shouldn't have personal lives or personal relationships or children when they're in grad school. You should be have your priorities straight. Uh, and, and then not realize that they themselves are being manipulated and and, and to me, some of it's not funny, right? And if you realize how serious all this stuff is and how many people are being manipulated and exploited, it, it, you, you'd be upset all the time. So I, I, I try to find the humor in it. I try to find a way to take on, I don't like student shaming and, and punching down. I prefer to take on publishers. And when I see my, my tweets taking off more virally using their hashtags than theirs are, that's satisfying to me. Uh, when I see people <laughs> overwhelmingly answering these online polls saying they should be paid and clicking on these articles and sharing them when the publishers are trying to do like thank a peer reviewer day or something and they're, they're rinky dink sort of uh, lip service to uh, free labor to you know assuage the masses so they can keep their profits coming in. Uh, and then I jump in on the hashtag and sort of kill it. That, that to me is funny, right? When I, can get more, when I got more followers than uh, Oxford Academic, that, that for me is funny. Uh, could, and when they retweeted me, that, that's, that was funny as hell. That was my, one of my main goals on being on Twitter <laughs> is to have shit academics say, tweet, fall right under the uh, bio for uh, Oxford Academic Press. That, that, was, that was funny. So <laughs> taking on sort of these traditional prestige markers, the industry sort of, uh, you know, if you're going to be punching on social media, punch up, right? Take a stab at something that's, taking advantage of people that maybe people should know about. And for me, it's, I can't keep it up unless I'm laughing. Uh, so for me, that's, that, that's the reason I'm, I'm sort of on there is to uh, try, I want to share, I'm, I'm learning about this stuff for the first time. So I'm, I get really pissed off. A lot of people know about this for a while, like the adjunct faculty situation, like, dude, you're really angry. And I, I, I just, I just found out. Right. And so I'm trying to share and I, I make jokes about it and I sort of move on to publishing and other uh, equity issues. Women in academia do a lot more work than the men. They don't get as much credit, and uh, yeah, the service. Yeah, gap. they get shittier course evaluations. They get more community work. They, and then you have the minority scholars, and even perhaps the new indigenous scholars they're hiring in Canada. Uh, they they probably have to sit on all the committees as the indigenous reps. You know, all, and they're they're getting burdens. There are specific groups in, within academia who uh, get shit on, postdocs, grad students, minority scholars, adjunct faculty. Even tenure-track faculty, I don't feel as sorry for anymore because you realize it can be a lot worse out there. Um, but it, every, there's a lot of groups that if they're not uh, laughing, they're, they're burning out. And so I, if, I feel responsible at a certain point um, you know, to be 
providing some levity and providing information. And then I actually funneled it into a research program uh, where I'm now doing research on this. I can empirically demonstrate that adjunct faculty internationally across 70 countries are physically sicker than other faculty. They are less motivated. They have a harder time finding uh, intrinsic value in their work. It's harder across the board, across the spectrum of uh, well-being outcomes for these faculty. That, that's not funny. That's my work side of it. So what do I do? I try to go online and share some levity, talk about the weird stuff we do and try to make it funny and, and put a few twists on it to make it humorous enough, uh, almost like a Rubik's Cube where academics like jokes that they have to work on for a little bit. So I try to put a little work into them to get something more out of them for people, to give them some, you know, something to think about. But is it ironic? Is it not ironic? That's the first level, right? Uh, I, there's academic humor, right? There's straight up, this is stupid stuff we do. Uh, there's just funny jokes, X, Y, and Z walk into a bar and it's an alphabet party or something, right? This is fine, but, um, or it's uh, past, present, and future tense walk into a bar, or it was tense, I screwed up that joke by saying tense in the first part. But th mm. there's, you know, there's that, and there's simple stuff. My, I think my best joke academically is, uh, what did one academic say to the other? And then you say, what? You're supposed to say, I don't know. And then I said, unlikely. So that, <laughs> see, that, that, to, that to me is hilarious. But whenever I tweet Thanks, that, it's not, Dan. it's not funny. But, uh, so I try to put some work into the jokes. I know there's other humor stuff out there. Some of it started after me, like Academia Obscura or uh, all these Lego accounts, right? Lego grad student, which I think is hilarious. Uh, Existential Comics is one that I follow, which I think is actually very clever. Uh, anyone who takes on Elon uh, yeah, Musk, yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. Upali from Australia, mm. or um, uh, Existential Comics, who got uh, who got blocked by uh, him recently, uh, is is a fan. I'm I'm a fan of them. So any Existential Comics for me, uh, they they write better jokes than I do. Nine Quarterly writes much better jokes than I do. Uh, but I think I try to tap into an audience that is um, not so focused on the esoteric humor. Um, but wants a reason to laugh despite burning out. Uh, wants to find something funny in sitting in faculty meetings. And so I'll, I, I tend to share a lot of stuff that other people say now. I tend to, on Facebook, get half of it is basically me sharing screenshots from Twitter because most of the stuff that other faculty read are much better than I would write myself. So I just share that stuff and get people engaged and get people talking. And the comments section on Facebook is where all the action is happening. People are having huge discussions where someone will criticize the joke and then someone will try to educate them and they end up having a dialogue where someone will describe their own personal experience with discrimination in academia and you will get thousands of comments, thousands and thousands of people joining in uh, to share and talk about these things. And I realize over time that I, there are very few other places on Facebook or social media where you can do this. Um, and humor is one way mm. to collect people like moth to a flame and once they're there, they, they talk. And they say things that you might not otherwise hear, and I find that fascinating. Dan here, taking you through the break. I just want to give you a quick reminder of the various ways you can support the show. It would mean the world to us if you were to share the show with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at Hertz Podcast. That's H-E-R-T-Z Podcast, one word. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hi, hit us up via message on Twitter or Facebook. You can also rate the show on iTunes, or you can leave a review. Now, let's get back to the show. Have you ever read a paper, then, and the, the content of the paper was something like, 
how incredibly terrible the gig economy is and how much it contributes to work uncertainty and how genuinely uh, destabilizing <laughs> that is for different people. Uh-huh. If you've ever read a paper on that that was peer-reviewed for free, I can't get that out of my head <laughs> as I'm flicking through the content. The, 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 the idea that you're putting, you're putting something on that topic about which you are very well aware and you, 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 you talk about, uh, power disparities and how there's one umbrella company that makes all the money and then they're employing these people who are, uh, in tenuous, in tenuous circumstances and working for, working for very little money. And then there's all these dangers to, there's all these dangers to having jobs like that and how difficult it is to be a delivery driver or, or, or drive a lift or work on TaskRabbit or something like that. <laughs> and then they publish it in. They publish it in a journal, um, <clears throat> owned by a company that with a with a top line that would make a uh, General Motors go, ooh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's cute, and but it's done it's done without a shred of irony and with, with that that very kind of passionate sincerity yes. that in context, yeah, I there is a point where you have to have a giggle. Yeah, if yeah. If, if, you're not, if you're not laughing, you're. I, I I usually think the phrase that you're crying, right? But if you're not laughing, uh, you're you're drinking, or you're, like, <laughs> you're it, it, like if you look at academic functions, you're suffering a subarachnoid hemorrhage. <laughs> like I I think the the uh, the first time I I met you, James, was a, a few weeks ago at a free alcohol function at. Uh, at the SIPS conference in Grand Rapids. Oh yes, and yes. You're only allowed to have one drink. Yeah, I fucked that up, didn't I? Yeah, we. I think we stood by the bar the whole time as a strategic maneuver. But um, you realize, though, over over time, uh, that many of these academic functions must involve alcohol. And whenever academics want to interact with each other, maybe it's just to overcome the innate, you know, social awkwardness that academics embody, that which is a prerequisite for being in the profession. Or maybe it's because Alcohol is an unspoken coping strategy that is explicitly endorsed in academia and sort of outwardly portrayed um, when you go to conferences and you have academics congregate. Uh, There are other coping strategies that people are using. Uh, Some use alcohol. Others go online and talk plainly about things and share. And then you notice that they get flamed. They get trolled and especially female scholars. I'm working on a project with George Valencianos uh, at uh, Royal Roads University looking at uh, harassment of female scholars online. So we developed a survey we're going to be launching in the next few weeks. Uh, so there, a lot of other coping strategies come with negatives. But I've found that I can almost operate with impunity on social media with very big accounts and remarkably minimal uh, uh, blowback by using humor, by providing someone a, a laugh or a smile it lets me get away with a little bit more. It lets me touch on more topics. And it also prevents people from trolling, I think, a little bit because they get trolled themselves for not getting the joke, right? You do not want to be the kind of person who is taking a joke seriously. Even if you don't understand jokes and humor is not your thing, you do not want to be out there advertising that fact. Every, it, it's at a certain yeah, point, you either get the sure. joke or you don't want to be out there as not getting the joke. Everybody wants to laugh and everyone wants to be included. And that's no more evident when you're in a crowd of people, everyone's laughing at a joke and you walk in going, <laughs> what's everyone laughing at, guy? Like, you do not want to be that last person. 
that just brings me back to memories from uh, you know junior high and trying to fit in. Yeah, you do not want to be that. There's person. a whole subreddit for that. Have you have you seen this? I don't go on Reddit much because it's full of people who should be minced, but they have a subreddit called Eight uh, Eight the Onion. No, I haven't it's seen R it. It's r slash 8 the onion, and it's people who take satire seriously uh, on the internet. It's just little grabs uh, of the okay. stuff that they've said. I've seen a Twitter and account called uh, That's the Joke, and you're supposed to yeah, tag people when they yeah, don't prob- get it. But. Probably, probably, the same, probably the same kind of... And it's so, it's so much fun. I mean, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're laughing at someone who's probably a bit dim who doesn't get it, but then they're not there and they come up with things that are unintentionally hilarious because they, they believe things that you couldn't possibly be true. There, there was one Onion article that said uh, parents, uh, parents have teenage girl euthanized because she's only capable of like m- moving her thumbs and rolling her eyes. So the whole joke is, is like, she's a teenager, she's sulky, she's in a persistent vegetative state, because um, all, all she can do is kind of leer at you and text people. So they, they had a, they had a put down. And it's a, it's a very straightforward kind of onion sort of joke. But they, they, I've seen four or five different grabs of people it's, going, oh that, my that sounds, God, that sounds humane to me. I don't know. That's so inhumane. How could you possibly, what terrible parents. Yes. How possibly could or they? Or some, some eye strain injury from, from rolling your eyes. Uh, I, uh, I yeah. One of the things, though, that I've been uh, sort of trying to sort out recently is over the past few years, I do have people with higher profile accounts um, criticizing my account for glamorizing uh, academic guilt, overwork, uh, work-life imbalance uh, by interpreting what I would say would be ironic statements about, um, you know, oh, uh, I, I like my coffee like I like my writing deadlines, you know, sweetened by the salty tears of crippling writing guilt and depression or something like that. <laughs> and it's, for me, it's kind of funny, but it's, um, it, it's also so obviously, uh, you know, hyperbolic that it should be taken uh, ironically, as a you know, as as you're taking a regular statement, twisting it to reflect your, you know, obviously overreaching academic angst to make a point that it sounds silly when you say it. So why are you putting yourself through this? Why are you signing up for things that are put like are unnecessarily, uh, you know, exploiting your psychological resources? And for me, for me, there's there's obviously another level to it. But if you don't take it to that next level, it looks like I'm glamorizing overwork, right? Calling it not a weekend but a workend. I actually stole that joke from Nine Quarterly, so he may have something against me on that but uh it but the idea is uh you know on the weekend i will talk on sundays about a guilt just mention the word guilt on a sunday tweet and it will take off partly because i do feel that way but partly is this is my therapy for getting through this you can't take a weekend off or take leisure time or have a date night without thinking in the back of your mind this conversation is going very slowly I, I could have been writing a discussion section right now for a paper which would, which be, would, would be a much bigger accomplishment than me talking about um, you know, real housewives or something, but it, it, and then you feel bad about that, and you try to correct that. And part of the correction for me is saying it out loud to realize how stupid it sounds. But for others, it sounds like I'm glamorizing this. So I'm trying to deal with how do I write a joke that is tipping my hat enough that you should possibly see the irony in it, but not enough that you wouldn't see the sincerity in it. 
right? That it's not so over the top that it's yeah. just like, oh, this guy's kind of uh, kind of weird, like t tone it down a bit. So I try, there's, there's a balance where if you're not ironic or sarcastic or uh, sardonic enough, you get taken literally. Or uh, you get, you, you have people thinking that your irony is, is uh, faux irony and you're really just actually feeling this way and, and trying to make others feel that way to feel less alone, which I guess is another level. I'm trying to sort out some of this irony stuff and whether or not it's worth it to tell these kind of jokes because some people, uh, particularly those who identify as having mental health issues, don't find some of these things funny. So I've actually uh, not been making jokes, for example, about imposter syndrome because there's one user in particular who I respect who actually suffers to this, uh, from this to a clinical degree and does not find them funny, does not find it helpful, right? If you're not experiencing imposter syndrome, you're not uh -huh. paying attention. That's kind of the joke, right? Everyone has imposter syndrome, which means nobody does kind of thing. If you feel like you don't belong and everyone feels like they don't belong, what is there to belong to if everyone feels like they don't belong? There is nothing. That, that doesn't make sense if everyone suffers a syndrome. It's not a syndrome. It's, it's a baseline, <laughs> right? It's, it's a, it, it, to me, that's funny, but it's not funny to people who have um, this as a trigger or who experience this on a daily uh, basis or who are seeking therapy for a lot of these things. So for me, I've, I've sort of, I have it in my mind. I will still joke about these things. There, there is a line and I do cross it, then, then, then walk it back, <laughs> well, you know, on occasion. But I don't know. Some of these things for me are do stick in my mind. More so, it's not whether or not I should tell these kind of jokes, but it's it's that I really need to do actual research on these things and, and contribute more substantively because there's obviously a nerve that I'm hitting where I can do better than than make light of it. Uh, I, I will still make light of it. Don't don't get me wrong, but I, I might actually incorporate, for example, a measure of imposter syndrome into my research, which is actually showing up in our studies with grad students and faculty as a as a huge issue empirically speaking. Right. Uh, well-being wise, imposter syndrome for one of my doctoral students in her dissertation is one of the biggest things predicting depression, stress, uh, work life balance issues. It's feeling like a fake that you're going to be found out like a fraud. So there is this blowback that I get on social media. And for me, it's not as much well, I should feel bad about telling these kind of jokes. It's that this gives me a, a research direction. This gives me an opportunity right, to do something yeah. more meaningful because these are just jokes online. If you don't like it, I don't care. I'll. I'll soft block you so you don't follow me anymore. Uh, or you can just block me yourself if you can't uh, unfollow yourself. So don't ruin the joke for other people. Find someone else who makes more, you know, kinder, gentler, sweeter jokes or whatever. And that's fine. I'm not for everybody. But for me, it's, it's not as much, maybe I'm taking this the wrong way. It's not as much that I shouldn't be doing this. It's that I should be doing something else about it in addition to doing this. There's more that needs to be done on some of these topics with burnout or adjunct faculty. Or I used to make jokes about pre-tenure and everyone would say, what about adjunct faculty? And I would like have to Google what adjunct faculty was because I'm not American. And yeah. It's more of an American thing. Now it's a Canadian thing in the last five years. So, um, yeah, it provides a lot of feedback for me. And Fuck, it actually... I feel really, I feel really healthy now. <laughs> no, serious. People are beset with all this guilt. I'm just congenitally fucking incapable of it. I oh, think yeah. This is one of the, the other, the other things when it, it comes up to, um, there's there's people people who have a, a a good relationship with what they do who are in circumstances that uh that 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 suit them who are working in a difficult industry but navigating it well either by accident or by design probably don't get a lot of this stuff they don't really get just exactly how deep it goes 
Um, Dan's even healthier than I am, which is extremely frustrating. You <laughs> know, uh, I mean it. Yes, I was talking on a side, having having guilt, having guilt on a Sunday. I mean, this is I, I find it really difficult to sure. relate to. I do a variety of things, but the, a, a lot of it's not academic. I want to work in the middle of the night. I will, and if uh, you know, if there's some horrible deadline, I'll do it every now and then. But it, the 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 idea that people can be beset with this stuff to such a degree that also that they'll they'll get upset about it and they can't pull it out of context what you just said reminds me of i've heard maybe three or four comedians say this i had ironic sexist humor that's supposed to be making fun of men and shitty impulses and how how you understand how you uh relate to women there's a lot of there's a lot of throwaway stuff that i did and it made me really fucking uncomfortable when i realized that people were taking this seriously right so they're pulling it out of context and going ah yeah well he he says he says all women are slags xyz in this content so we we all we all like him now and like oh wow that's not the point at all so how things are received i mean when you stick it out there to some extent it stops being your joke and if you're if you're alienating people that you really don't want to, then you have to try and think really carefully about how you're going to construct what isn't isn't funny. Right. I had no idea that I had no idea that you went this this deeply into it because that sounds like the writing process of comics I've heard talking about how they think about humor in the last five years or yep. so, considering how much stuff there is to navigate. And you still want to be you. You still want to uh, you still want to write humor that has uh, a bite to it. But right. at the same time, you don't you don't want to be misunderstood. You don't want to be, you don't want to be pulled out of context and kicked down a corridor for something that you very clearly didn't <laughs> say. But at the same time, if you explain jokes to any degree. Not only does it feel like you're apologizing, but you fucking kill them. You're like, you're funny for 30 seconds and you go, oh, just, just in case you were missing the context, let me have a go at that. Now you can't do that shit on Twitter. No. <laughs> you can't, you can't write yourself a backup. You but, can't develop something over eight to 10 but minutes. But you can capitalize on that on Facebook. So I will find, for example, uh, the first thing I wanted to, to mention in regards to that is I try to strategically write tweets or jokes that can be taken both sincerely or ironically to capture both audiences, and they both will share it, believing it's it's true to them. Either ironically, as a uh, as this, as if uh, you are not that kind of person who experiences guilt, and people should not experience guilt, or someone will take it sincerely, saying, "Yes, you um, are experiencing guilt, and, and I am too." Or and then I guess there's another group of people who see it at sort of an, a meta-ironic level that you are a person who experiences guilt, but feel bad about experiencing said guilt and tell people you experience guilt, but say it in an ironic way, hoping people might take you seriously or not. And uh, you, you never know what they're actually thinking, which is the, actually the basis for that uh, retweets are not endorsements tweet. Because uh, the retweets thing, some people uh, retweet things to say things they, they don't want to say. But then someone might say, oh, but you share a lot of retweets about mental health issues. Do you have mental health issues? Like, no, no, no. I just really believe in supporting these people when you actually obviously do have mental health issues. You just can't say it. You retweet it. So uh, it, it, it isn't you can write tweets and retweet things in a way that intentionally confuses people as to what you mean and what you are experiencing. And I try to almost write tweets in a way that balances that line where I want to almost have some people take it seriously. 
but I have enough cues in there, so you might take it ironically as well, which is self-protective for me a little bit. So I can go through my whole series of tweets that I've ever written over the last five years and say, ah, it's all ironic. It's just me trying to identify with mental, <laughs> with mental health issues that I hear other people are experiencing. I personally don't have any of these things. On the other hand, uh, I, I've dealt with mental health issues personally repeatedly over the last number of years since I started in academia, right? I've seen a therapist for almost all of these issues that I talk about. You know, guilt, burnout, depression, these are not uncommon. It's not even uncommon in academia, in high, you know, stress, high achievement professions, imposter syndrome, guilt on a weekend. They're, they're not uniquely academic. We're not special, right? If I actually got that Sunday night joke tweet from, uh, you know, other memes that go around talking about how everyone feels on a Sunday night that they've been completely unproductive and they got to go to work the next day and they regret all the, all the work that they're going to have to do Monday morning. That's not academic. So we're not special necessarily, which is also sobering. And good, a good part of being on social media is you're talking not just to academics. And one of the most irritating and sort of enlightening replies I get is, you know, the hashtag not all academics or that and not, not just academics, right? This stuff is not mm. special. We're not special. Um, but I do find yeah. that you can write tweets in a way that uh, write statements and say things in a way uh, that, identif that people identify with that don't really say what you're thinking exactly. Um, my most recent tweet, I was yesterday thinking I would say something and I wouldn't say something. So I just wrote that sometimes you write drafts of tweets and save them. If you were really, if you weren't the person you are and, and weren't the kind of person who would stop yourself from saying, you might not relate to this, James, because you seem pretty free with your... Uh, <laughs> I have never written a draft of a tweet. He doesn't even know what the draft thing is in Twitter. I would I'm have sure. yeah, 12, 15 it, drafts. Dan's of, not making you know. fun of me. I have no idea how to do that. How do you do that? I think things I would that, say if I if I didn't always stop myself. Like I grew up very religious, so there's a very core of me that uh, you know stops myself from even thinking I'm, I, I could experience these things or should say these things. So I, I find it easy to censor, self-censor. It's, uh, it, it's not a problem. But I, I basically, I wanted to say something and I, and I didn't. I just said that I saved a draft. And people know what that means. Yeah, you wanted to say something, but you know, your if your kids follow you on Twitter, like my one of my colleagues said, you can't say everything. Cause if there's people with real mental health issues, and you say something that might be taken more seriously than you're experiencing it, or your employer's on there, like, dude has mental health problems, we have to replace him for this class, or something. You have to. Uh, sometimes you think about these things. Sometimes it's not comfortable writing exactly what you think. But um, I find if I can write, I, if I just shift to my meme account, I can say something there. So that's what I did just in the last few days. And I try to say it in a way that is a little bit poetic, a little bit academic, dad joke-ish, right? We're all just manuscripts in progress, right? It's, it's not a funny, it's not the most clever thing. But you get that there's an emotional tone behind it, right? That everyone's a work in progress, which means something isn't right. Something isn't finished yet. But you are hopeful because it's in progress, right? It's not rejected. It's not stopped. It's not shelved. It's not in the, you know, in the bookshelf. It, it's in, in a work in progress and everyone has a manuscript in progress. So faculty, grad students, postdoc, it's an equalizing thing. So at, at, at multiple levels, I thought it would resonate, but mainly it got a bit more emotion out there that I was more comfortable expressing on my personal account. And that took off and mm. people are like, oh, that's very deep. And I'm like, well, it really isn't, but I just, I can't say exactly what I was thinking at the time because uh, not everything is, uh, effectively conveyed for public public consumption not everything is immune to being misinterpreted and if you're feeling depressed one evening the next day you're not you you might regret saying things a certain way um so i i find i try to write tweets in a way that is balanced uh that might 
and it, if when I write it as a joke, I almost write it in a way that can be taken both ways as well. It sort of doubles your audience. It's good for engagement. It sounds like you have bite, but you could be, you know, sometimes I'm actually burnt out. Sometimes I'm making fun of people who are burnt out. Sometimes I'm making fun of me and how burnt out I was or how burnt out I am. And so it, it could be anything. Um, but mainly it starts a conversation. Uh, it gets people talking about whether or not this should be happening. It is happening. Why isn't it happening? I don't relate. Some people are like, I, I live this. Uh, and I think that's mainly it. It's not my quality of writing. It's not all the strategy that goes into it. It's, it's usually just, it sparks a conversation about overwork or about uh, exploitation or um, guilt, depression. You know, I'm, I'm not depressed. I'm pre-tenure. That was one of my first jokes. <laughs> right? Right. Or it's not depressing, yeah. it's critical thinking. Because if you think critically about the academic profession, you end up feeling depressed because you realize how exploited we all are for the sake of, uh, you know, the almighty dollar, Elsevier, right? So if it, it, some of these things are jokes. Some of them tap on bigger issues. But um, I find my, my responsibility now is not even just to come up with this stuff, but to share what everyone else is saying. Uh, to highlight other people's mm. tweets and topics, to share articles and content, because thousands of people click. I, I crash websites when I post an article link, right? I've, I've crashed the Plus One website, the London School of Economics blog website. I didn't know this until I met with them, but they're like, dude, every time you post something, can you, can you warn us? Because our servers uh, <laughs> shut down. We've got, to te- we've got to tell Cloudflare. <laughs> yeah, like I post one of my articles on there. It's got 26,000 views within 24 hours, making it one of my most altmetrically uh, you know, cited, shared thing ever, and uh, it, it's about you know, on an, well being on an academic students. article. Exactly. So I use this uh-huh. sometimes on an academic just, article. To, Shit. just to test it I've out had... to see if it works for academic indicators as well. But it's a responsibility, oh. right? People click, so I try to share stuff that's uh, helpful too. That's that's full on, and now be, be, because of all of this, it's, it's interesting that you've, if you if you think of it in sort of structural terms, you've set up this platform. And you have this resource now and you've immediately turned it around into a tool that you're using to address some of the things that are at the substance of the jokes. Yeah. It's a it's, it's a very it's a it's a very unusual approach to the the the, the process of um, not try to imply this is the only thing you're doing. I think we've made all of that clear by now. <laughs> but in functional in functional terms it's a very unusual approach to but how how do we how do we identify a problem sufficient that x y z and now it's kind of it's it's become a tool for actually addressing it in and of itself i, I don't know if i it's if i have the solutions i know there's a lot of other people who have uh, you know they write blogs and news articles on on how to address the problems uh, I, I don't have the answers to a lot of these questions i don't fully understand the experiences of of women in academia Partly because these conversations happen around me, but not with me. I have a lab that says, mm. uh, you know, nine women and one guy. And there are obviously issues that surround having kids in grad school and interacting uh, in the workplace with male faculty or whatever that I, d- I don't hear about. But I can at least start a conversation. And I think the ability to sort of make light of the uh, situation, sort of bringing it back to that uh, as sort of a coping strategy. For me, basically, I feel uncomfortable. When I show up to work, I feel uncomfortable. It feels like an ivory tower that I shouldn't be there. right? I grew up blue collar where I was supposed to graduate and get a job. I had to convince my dad that eventually over time, getting scholarships meant that I was being paid 
to go to school. And only once I won my first $10,000 fellowship could I convince my family that I should be going to university. Like I grew up very religious where university was secular education and it was not encouraged. My mom was a bit more encouraging. My, my dad's side was not, you know, it, it was not a positive, right? So whenever I, I would give a talk or, or um, uh, you know, even now, uh, you know, publish a paper or whatever, there's always this tinge of weirdness and guilt that this is, this is not real work. This is not getting your hands dirty. I don't have calluses. I have, you know, I have nice soft hands from typing, right? So it, or, or thumbs from tweeting. It's, it's just not, there's a, there's a sense of um, trying to make this academic enterprise more meaningful than it otherwise would be as it is presented to me. Partly because of my background, partly to make it feel more like real work where I'm helping people. Um, but there's still this odd, weird sort of guilt factor where I, if I'm not laughing and making light of it, like my whole family did when I went to university, right? It's like, oh, he thinks it's such a big deal. I, they laughed when I got my diploma. Like, are we supposed to call you doctor now? It's a big fucking joke, right? Uh, it's funny. And <laughs> everything is sort of, you need to be taken down a few notches so you don't feel like you're better than everyone else, right? When, you're, when you are in a family where, where graduating high school was a big deal. My mom went back, got her GED, got a university degree and, and works as a nurse now. And she, she was motivated by sending her kids to, to school. She worked three jobs to give us a chance to go to university. I got a thousand bucks from my mom and that's the only money I ever got from my parents to go to university. I had to win every single shred of money that uh, I could to afford my degree. I lived at home for as long as I could. I got all three degrees at the most nearby university that I could drive to in my 1972 Volvo with the hole in the floor. Uh, I, I tried to make it work uh, based on the resources that I had and despite the uh, negative perceptions of post-secondary education within my own family. I had to prove to them, prove to myself. So when I show up to work, I don't feel like I deserve to be there necessarily, or that this is a place I feel completely comfortable. I feel weird when giving a talk. I, I halfway through every talk I give, I always start imagining how weird it must be for the people in the audience to sit here listening to me. This is such a weird interaction. Someone's standing here with a stupid PowerPoint clicker, and oh, this is not a real convert. This is not a real thing. This is not work. This is. This is so weird. Again, I'm giving a, a talk, a three-hour lecture on a Wednesday evening to a, cl a class full of teachers. I just think these are teachers. I don't have an education degree. I, I'm not supposed to be here. And then I have to, I, the only way I can get through that personally is to stop and laugh at how stupid it is for someone without an education degree to be teaching education students in a graduate program. It's funny. You know, you wouldn't pick someone in, in that position, Ben. I make it work, but uh, I don't feel completely comfortable in academia. I'm still exploring non-academic careers personally, um, partly for that reason. But the way I cope is by laughing, by saying, did I really just say that? Do you guys not feel uncomfortable saying this or just asking my colleagues? Like, isn't it weird you, you, you spend months writing a grant for thousands of dollars and it's either a complete fail or a complete success, and there's no in-between. Mm. It's not like it's stu yeah. students have it easy. You, they get 60, 70, they get gradients of failure. We just get a punch in the gut or a paycheck. And, and it's, it's kind of funny. You graduate to a level where the failures are so uh, gut-wrenching that you wouldn't expect this to be what you were working towards, right? right? Where it's just abject failure or complete success and when you succeed people don't ever talk about the failure so for me there's like a whole sea of failure on which these little ships of success float no one's talking about the fact that we're all in fucking ships right on a whole sea of failure and people who support all this stuff and 
it's it's funny to me that that this that all this stuff is going on with publishers and exploitation and and burnout. People are burning out. I have several colleagues who've been in the hospital for this and that, and it's considered oh, normal. Really? Oh, for sure, considered normal. Yeah, like, so, 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 just sort of the 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 old school version of a kind of nervous breakdown, kind of burnout, <sighs> cancer, heart problems. It it, it runs the gamut. Uh, I'm not sure to Fuck. what extent you know it, uh, this profession selects in people willing to run themselves ragged or workaholics who disguise it as passion or for their discipline or whatever. But um, it, there there are things going on, at least that I see in academia. Maybe perhaps because I start off feeling uncomfortable, I start noticing things that are are weird. Right, disrespect of academic administrative staff to me is unacceptable. But you see this when I'm walking into the office, I chat with them. I think they're funny as hell and they have lots of lots of gossip. They're wonderful to talk to. And if you talk sweetly to them, you ask them about their cats or the pictures they have on the wall. They will let you submit documents late. They will tell you when people are talking <laughs> shit about you in the hallway. They will give you the best information. And then you see someone else walk in, sort of throw something on their desk and walk out. And you're like, oh, wow, I guess that's what you think is normal. And I'm feeling like, does anybody else... Not not notice. Am I am I the mm. should I not be here? Am I should I not be talking to you? Right? Should I not be eating my lunch with you guys in your lunchroom? It's, but no one else is doing this. Uh, over time, the newer faculty are more comfortable. They're more like me. It might be a generational thing, but um, I find if I'm not, if I feel uncomfortable sometimes and laughing about it, or even just saying it out loud to people and seeing if like, does this sound weird or funny to anybody? Like the, the weird stuff that we do, right? Um, replying all is like a massive thing that we, you know, academics don't understand email, reply all, right? Uh, I, I've done this, it's, per, it's a personal, you know, blight on my my technological record institutionally, but um, it's weird. I think academia is weird, that's my perspective. Um, and I find laughing at it is a good way to cope with that part. Feeling uncomfortable, you laugh and make jokes, right? I've, I've, I've watched, I like watching documentaries about comedians, comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, probably mm, my favorite good. show. Yeah. Uh, because you see the minds of people who are trying to make people laugh and why. And it usually comes from some sort of personal insecurity or some issues they're working out or, or something from as a kid. And I find I've always done this. I've always laughed and tried to make fun of things because my I have two brothers and they would always mock me for anything I did. Right. So if you take yourself too seriously, I've always been a deep thinker about existential stuff. And, and, and I would just be mocked mercilessly if I ever said this out loud. <laughs> so I, I can't help mock myself now that I'm in that position of privilege and uh, I find it a good coping strategy, and I think it does resonate with people. And it's a, fortunately a good conversation starter as well. Hi, everyone. We were having such a good chat with Nathan that we have split our discussion over two episodes. Part two will be released in two weeks' time, so make sure you tune in then to hear more from Nathan. If you're not already, make sure you subscribe to the show so that part two gets delivered straight to your smartphone. If you can't wait for two weeks, in the meantime, you can check out our back catalogue. There is over 60 hours worth of hurts on a whole range of topics. If you're on Twitter, follow Nathan at Academic Say or Prof underscore NCH, James at James Heathers and myself at DS Quintana. That's all for today and we will catch you all soon. Like a Pokemon, which we also have an episode on, believe it or not, around the 20 episode mark. Okay, that's really all. Bye bye.